Good morning. Welcome to Providence Southern Oregon Grand Rounds for February. Uh, today, our topic is suicide risk evaluation and management in primary care presented by Dr. Tracy Dixon and Dr. Carissa Bravo. Uh, they're both embedded behavioral health providers for PMG. Dr. Dixon has worked in, in integrated care for 10 years and has been with Providence at the Central Point Clinic for one year. And Dr. Bravo has worked in integrated care for five years and has been at the Medford Medical Clinic for four years. Uh, welcome and thank you. Good morning. So we are going to discuss suicide risk evaluation and management in primary care. And before we begin, we would like for you guys just to rate yourself, write it down on a scale of one to 10, your comfort level and confidence in suicide risk assessment and management. 10 would be completely comfortable and confident in your ability. Five is I can do it, but not really comfortable. And one is this is why I'm attending today. So go ahead and rank yourself really quick, and then we'll come back to that at the end. So the agenda, so we'll start with going over suicide trends and statistics, and then special populations and how that kind of looks in regards to those statistics. We'll talk about stigma and attitudes, and then we'll get to risk assessment, looking at the risk and protective factors, the warning signs, and kind of talking about the differences between ideation, intent, and plan, and how that might play out, the risk level, and then we'll go to risk management, where we'll talk about safety planning, follow-up, self-care, and then we'll go ahead and review some of the resources in Southern Oregon and national. The learning objectives, so by the end of this, hopefully you'll be able to complete a suicide risk assessment that will include the evidence-based risk and protective factors that you'll be able to professionally document the assessment, a safety plan, and your reasoning for the clinical decision-making making that you did, and then identify and manage your own attitude and reactions towards suicide, which is quite important when working with people so that you can create a collaborative empathic presence. Let's talk about suicide trends. So why is suicide prevention important to talk about in primary care? Well, because those who actually die by suicide generally see their PCP within one month of their death. And that's more than any other medical provider or other clinician that they might see. There's been a huge hoopla, like people kept saying, oh, suicide rates have increased since COVID-19 and, you know, mental health is going down since COVID-19. So we wanted to kind of look at what is the, the truth in that. So according to the Pan American Health Organization, 50% of those participated in the survey reported that they did experience a decline in their overall mental health following COVID-19. And that was generally in relation to any occupational or economic loss, any trauma, abuse, limited access to health care. And then we looked at the component of the suicide. Has suicide really, in fact, increased? Well, there was this journal article from the Asian Journal of Psychiatry that a woman actually reviewed all of the research that had been um, obtained since COVID-19 in regards to suicides 
And she found that actually there, in fact, it's declined for most populations or remains stable. So here are the statistics. So I'm gonna do 2019 and 2020. 2020 just came out in, in November and they're still looking over the stats. So we don't have all the beautiful tables that 2019 has. But in 2019, suicide was the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. And it was the second leading cause for the age group between 10 and 34 years old, with the largest group being from 25 to 34 years old. And then for the group 35 to 44 years old, it's the fourth leading cause of death. And that again is only in 2019. And Suicide was two and a half more times likely than homicides in 2019. As of 2020, suicide is no longer in the top 10 leading causes of death, which is huge because uh, that trend has been pretty consistent and for at least the last 15 years. And suicide claimed 45,855 people in 2020, which is compared to the 47,511 in 2019. Our resources. So there was the National Survey on Drug Use and Health in 2020. And like I said, this just came out in November. 4.9% of those over the age of 18 thought about suicide. 3.2 million people made a plan for suicide. And of those 3.2 million people, it was highest for those of mixed ethnicity with about 514,000 people with suicidal thoughts and 155,000 people with a plan. In 2020, 1.2 million adults attempted suicide. And then the suicide attempts were highest also for mixed ethnicity. So we just wanna make sure we talk about that a little bit. Here's a newer graph. So you'll notice here that at the top right, it says the final for 2019 and provisional for 2020. So those stats are still relatively new. They're still looking at them and kind of dis dissecting what the material is actually saying. Um, so these are adjusted or age adjusted suicide rates by sex. And I actually have the numbers here that I can kind of say. So for 2019, you'll see that there's a little bit decrease like we talked about from 2019 to through 2020. For male, it also has decreased for that population from 37,000 to about 36,000. And for the female population also would decline from about 10,000 to 9,000. On the upper left, you'll see that these are the age adjusted suicide rates for men by race and ethnicity. And what you're gonna notice here is, while overall the suicide rate for men has declined, there are a few populations that it actually has increased within the men. So for black men, the suicide uh, rates have actually increased by 154 uh, people. The American Indian and Alaskan Native increased by 38 individuals and then the Hispanic men increased by 259. So that's very different in comparison to female, 
the rates across the board have actually declined. So there is an increase in uh, suicide rates for men. I did want to try to do the Oregon statistics. There isn't anything for 2020 as of yet, but for 2018 and 2019, this is the data that we have. So suicide was the leading cause of death between the age of 10 and 24 years of age on, in 2019. And Oregon ranked number six for suicide in the United States, and that's comparison to the percentage of the population total. In 2019, there were 906 suicides. And then I also added some, um, some statistics for Jackson County. In 2018, there were 64 suicides just in this county. It was lower for people of the age 10 to 24 and highest for 25 to 44 and 65 and older. So before we talk about the components of uh, completing a thorough risk assessment, I wanted to briefly highlight two populations that are particularly high at risk for suicide. The first population I wanna talk about is the geriatric population. As we saw in the graph on age and suicide rates, suicide risk continues to increase with age, with reaching peaks at 85 years of age and older. But according to the research, older adults tend to exhibit a greater suicide intent. They tend to plan suicide more carefully. They're more likely to use more lethal means for suicide, and they tend to take more precautions against discovery. I think a statistic that highlights this really well is that among individuals who have attempted suicide, one in four older adults will successfully complete, whereas one in 200 youths will successfully complete. Concerningly, there's also a decrease in the use of antidepressants among this population, with only 17% of those who are 85 and older who actually completed suicide taking an antidepressant at the time of their death. Unfortunately, one issue with this population is that communication of suicidal ideation and risk are often unheard or misunderstood by their medical professionals and can be misinterpreted at times as a preoccupation with death and dying. When we think about the factors that contribute to an increased risk of suicide in this population, we see that loneliness and isolation tends to be one of the biggest factors, as well as grief over the loss of a loved one, loss of independence and self-sufficiency, experiencing severe chronic illness or pain, financial troubles, and cognitive impairment has also been shown to be an additional factor. Another population with a higher risk of suicide is the LGBTQ population. Lesbian, gay, and bisexual adults have a 17% attempt rate compared to 2.4% of the general U.S. population. And in a 2019 report investigating suicidality in LGBTQ adolescents and young adults, they found that 26% of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer youth reported suicidal ideation, and 12% reported an attempted suicide. Now compare that to 
13% and 5.4% respectively among their cisgender and heterosexual peers. In 2015, um, the National Center for Transgender Equality did a study, and this was one of the most shocking statistics that I had seen. Transgender adults reported a 40% lifetime attempt rate. In 2021, the Trevor Project, so this is a very recent survey, 52% of transgender and non-binary youth, quote, seriously considered suicide in the past year, and one in five reported attempting suicide. The factors that are primarily contributing to the suicidality in this population, the number one factor that comes up time and time again in the research is family rejection. Other factors, of course, are bullying, harassment, and experiencing violence and minority stress or the stress related to their marginalized identities. When I transition into risk assessment and risk factors, I will talk more about other populations that are at higher risk, but first Tracy's going to talk about um, attitudes towards suicide as this is really important when, when addressing assessment and managing suicidality. Okay, so when we're looking at stigma and attitudes, we want to take into account that when we walk into the room with any of this, it is going to have an impact on the interaction. And I just, when we go through this part, just take an account of how you feel about suicide and what your attitude or um, if you have any stigma about people who have had suicidal ideation. So there are professionals who are aversive towards suicidal patients. Others are appropriately concerned. There are some that are kind of indifferent and like, yeah, okay, not a big deal. Some professionals are terrified of having a patient who is suicidal. Others feel fairly confident working with patients who are in fact suicidal. Some can be a little bit overprotective, like this person can't leave. I need to change how they're thinking about their life, that their circumstances aren't that bad. And others can kind of be dismissive of, oh, that person just has borderline or that's ridiculous. Like, it's fine. So just know what your attitude is about it. And that can help kind of change how you interact with a patient when you do a suicide risk assessment. I wanted to include this, there was an online survey in 2019, it was actually published in 2020, where they did a survey on Facebook and there were 152 people that responded and they asked some different questions and I thought these two parts were really relevant. One is, do you believe suicide is preventable? And out of 152 people that responded, 86% said yes, and there were 14% that said no. I do want to note that uh, one third of the responders had actually lost someone to suicide. 59% were white. 63% were between the ages of 18 and 29 years old. So let's go and look at what is your opinion on suicide? So is it a way to escape? Is it a selfish act? It is a selfless act or impulsive act. Is it a sign of weakness? Is it a sign of strength? Is it a revenge act? 
So I thought these stats were pretty interesting that 39% thought it was a way to escape. And then 13% thought it was in fact a selfish act. And what they found was those who actually knew somebody that were, had someone close to them who committed suicide or completed suicide, they actually believe that media glorifies suicide. Whereas those participants who had not had someone that they love pass away from suicide, they did not think media glorifies suicide. So that's kind of interesting, that difference. The other statistics I wanted to take from this survey was the women population viewed social media as a good platform to seek and ask for help, while men did not. They also found that from those 59% of white responders and then the Asian responders believe that people have a right to die by suicide, yet that suicide is a sign of weakness. So these viewpoints really have an impact on how you interact. So now we're going to talk about the components of a risk assessment. Can you go on to that next slide, Tracy? Thank you. So when we think about the risk factors and protective factors, I've broken it down into three domains, biological, psychological, and social for ease because there are unfortunately a lot of risk factors. So for biological factors, as seen in the stats before, men are about four times more likely than women to die from suicide. And white males in particular accounted for almost 70% of suicide deaths. And that was from 2017. Women, however, are more likely to express suicidal thoughts and make non-fatal attempts than men. Other groups with higher rates of suicidal behavior include American Indian, Alaskan Native, and Pacific Islander. The prevalence of suicidal thoughts, suicidal planning, and suicide attempts is significantly higher among adults aged 18 to 29 years than it is among adults aged 30 and older. However, as I mentioned before, older adults have the highest rate of suicide completion. And then, of course, I highlighted before the LGBTQ population is at higher risk. Psychological factors that increase risk include the presence of ideation, intent, plan, and having access to means to complete suicide. Prior attempts or rehearsals is very important because this is the strongest risk factor for death by suicide. We also can see a sense of hopelessness, worthlessness, or perceiving themselves as a burden, particularly on family members. Lack of impulse control, comorbid severe mental health problems, and substance use disorders and having a prior history of a psychiatric diagnosis and a recent discharge or change in mental health treatment can also increase the risk. Social factors include a recent loss, such as financial losses or job loss, job problems or legal problems, relationship problems, such as a breakup, violence in a relationship or loss, other stressful life events, 
having a history of abuse or a family history of child maltreatment, family history of suicide, social isolation or living alone, having possession of a firearm, those who are never married, widowed, divorced, <clears throat> or separated are also at a higher risk of suicide. And other populations with an increased risk include rural populations and active or retired military personnel. In fact, veterans, <clears throat> excuse me, in the state of Oregon are two to 2.5 times more likely to die by suicide versus the general population. And lastly, local ep epidemics of suicide or what they sometimes call suicide clusters can increase the risk. Now, if we take a look at the protective factors for biological protective factors, someone being healthy and engaging in healthy lifestyle, if they're sleeping and eating and exercising, that is a protective factor. Adhering to medication, having a state, even if they have a chronic health condition, if it's stable, that's a protective factor. For psychological protective factors, having healthy coping skills and problem-solving skills, showing impulse control and anger management. And this one's very important as well, having a perceived meaning in life and life satisfaction. And then for social protective factors, which I tend to find these as some of the strongest protective factors for our patients, if they have a positive social support network and connections to friends and family and community. Cultural or religious beliefs can be a protective factor specifically if those beliefs discourage suicide. Having a sense of responsibility to family and friends and even pets can be protective. Having children in the home or being pregnant having access to medical and behavioral health care has been shown to be a protective and having a stable relationship with their PCP has shown to be a protective factor for individuals. And then of course, restricted access to means of self-harm. Now I wanna talk about warning signs a little bit, which tell us about the immediate risk of suicide. And this differs from risk factors, which only indicate that someone is at a heightened risk for suicide, but doesn't really indicate anything about immediate risk. You've probably heard warning signs from, from patients, um, such as, I wish I were dead, what's the point of living, I can't take it anymore, or who cares if I'm dead anyway. So I wanna highlight some general warning signs to, to watch out for and then more clear warning signs to watch out for. That's the next slide, Tracy, thank you. So for general warning signs, showing rage or talking about seeking revenge, increase in agitation. If the patient is acting impulsively or engaging in risky activities all of a sudden, if they're talking about feeling trapped or being in unbearable pain, if they're talking about being a burden to others, or talking about feeling hopeless and having no purpose in life. If you see patients withdrawing or increased social isolation, that's a warning sign. A sudden increase in the use of alcohol or drugs, displaying extreme mood swings, a sudden drop in academic or job performance, 
And if they start to give away possessions, that can be a warning sign as well. Clear warning signs are things such as threatening to harm themselves or looking for a way to harm themselves, seeking access to means such as pills or weapons, if they're talking or writing about death or dying, if they start writing a will or suicide notes or goodbye letters to loved ones even, if they start to organize their business matters or finding new home for pets, or if they start planning their own funeral. Those are clear warning signs. So when we talk about screening for suicidal ideation and behavior, this is critical. And we really want to be screening all patients at initial contact and ideally screening every visit every time with the PHQ-9. If a patient has endorsed question nine on the PHQ, which asks, quote, in the past two weeks, how often have you been bothered by thoughts that you would be better off dead or hurting yourself in some way? We wanna dedicate some time to explore this further with safety being the number one priority with patients. Questions that you can ask include, with this much stress, have you thought about harming yourself or ending your life? Are you currently or have you ever experienced suicidal ideation? So if a patient endorses that they do have suicidal ideation or thoughts that they would be better off dead, we want to assess for frequency. How often are they having these thoughts? How long do these thoughts last when they have them? Are they fleeting or are they going on for, for hours out of the day? How easy is it for them to control these thoughts? How difficult is it for them to distract themselves from these thoughts? How pervasive are they? What triggers an increase in, this thought, in these thoughts for them? And is there anything that deters them from these thoughts? We wanna know how long they've had these thoughts. Is this, is this recent? Has this been going on for months? Has this been going on off and on for years? And we wanna know, especially if these are passive or active thoughts. So passive thoughts, you can assess by asking, have you ever wished you were dead or wished you could go to sleep and not wake up or just wish you weren't existing versus active thoughts is have you actually had thoughts about hurting yourself or killing yourself? When someone is having ideation, we wanna know is there how serious or how intense is their wish to actually terminate their life? And questions that get to this are, have you had some intention of acting on these thoughts? If you leave here, what is the likelihood that you're going to kill yourself? Do you intend to carry out your plan? And have you taken steps or preparations toward making a suicide attempt or preparing to kill yourself? We wanna get as much information as we can if the patient does endorse having a suicidal plan by asking, have You've been thinking about how you might do this. Have you ever done anything, started to do anything, or prepared to do anything to end your life? When, where, how? Any preparations made to attempt suicide, such as hoarding pills, buying a gun, looking for a location that they would do it in? Have they engaged in any rehearsals, such as holding the gun to their head, traveling to that specific location? And very importantly as well is, do they have access right now to the means to carry out their plan? 
Asking about previous ideation and previous attempts can be really useful information in helping to determine the current level of risk and, and for treatment planning. For one, I talked about earlier that previous suicide attempts are the biggest risk factor for suicide completion. So we can see how obtaining that information on previous suicidal behavior can be useful. It can also help to explore with patients who have had previous ideation or previous attempts what treatment, if any, they had because that could help inform treatment today. We want to revisit what's worked for them in the past and alternatively avoid what hasn't worked for them in the past. Um, just for some additional information, I have the definitions differentiating suicide attempts, su uh, interrupted suicide attempts, aborted attempts, uh, non-suicidal self-injurious behavior, and preparatory suicidal behaviors, but I'll leave that for you to review um, and go on to the next slide for the sake of time. So this table can be really helpful in determining the, the current risk level of suicidal behavior. It takes into consideration the risk and protective factors and the presence of ideation, intent, or plan um, in helping to determine the risk level and possible interventions. I'll just briefly go over the intervention portion because Tracy's going to go into that in more detail in risk management. But in general, for high risk level, we see psychiatric disorders with severe symptoms or an acute stressful or precipitating event, such as a major loss in the patient's life. The patient has endorsed persistent ideation, plan, and intent to harm themselves. And as for intervention, admission to the emergency department and potentially inpatient treatment is generally indicated. For moderate risk level, we see multiple risk factors and few protective factors. The presence of ideation and plan or ideation and intent, but not all three. And then for moderate risk interventions, they should include developing a safety plan, providing crisis resources, and a referral to IOP or outpatient mental health treatment. And then for those in low risk, we can identify several strong protective factors or the presence of suicidal ideation without intent and without plan. And interventions usually include referral to behavioral health, your behavioral health provider in your clinic for symptom reduction, and also providing them crisis resources in case the suicidal ideation worsens or plan or intent do develop. For documenting this with patients, you want to include any identifiable any identifiable precipitants or stressors that contributed to the suicidal thoughts or behaviors? What symptoms is the patient currently reporting or displaying? The nature of the suicidal ideation, whether it's passive, active, how intense, the level of controllability, and it can really be beneficial in your charting to use direct quotes from the patient whenever possible. You want to identify if there's a presence of intent or plan, being as specific as you can regarding the patient's plan, and if the patient has engaged in any preparations or rehearsals of the plan. Include any previous suicidal behavior, including attempts, aborted attempts, 
any risk or protective factors that you assessed during the visit. You can include the Columbus Suicide Severity Rating Scale score, which gives you a kind of a category of risk levels, and that's included in EPIC in the ambulatory screen. And that can really help with justifying the risk level that you determine the patient to be at. Lastly, you want to include any interventions that took place in the visit, including when the next follow-up is going to be, any referrals provided, resources provided. And if a safety plan is created in that visit, it's a good idea to include it in their after-visit summary and print it for the patient to take home so they have that with them. So for your reference, I included a documentation example. Now this example is a little longer than you might actually use in the visit because I did an example where the patient is endorsing ideation and um, plan without intent. So obviously there's gonna be more information the more they're endorsing. Um, and these would be the kind of documentations that us behavioral health providers would do. Um, but I included the, the aspects of ideation, uh, plan, risk factors, and in the next slide, protective factors, the results of the Columbia Adult Rating Scale. So you can see that there's a, for this particular example, a category three, it gives you the severity of the, the risk. So at, for at category three, it's active suicidal ideation with any methods not planned without intent to act. And then based off of all of that previous information, determining the risk level, based off of the risk level, what are the recommendations and interventions? So that's a documentation that, that you can review further. Okay, so let's talk about risk management. So I used Carissa's table here to kind of be reflective of what she spoke about and what we're looking at in terms of intervention. So for the high risk level, I put on here, I always try to go the path of least resistance because we wanna create an environment that people feel safe to report when they're struggling and not make it uh, turn into an aversive event where they don't ever want to report it again. So if a, if a patient is in fact present with a loved one, then I will always see if the loved one will be willing to take the patient and if the patient is willing to go to a behavioral health hospital. Now, if the patient is alone during the visit, then I will see if the patient will agree to go if we can call a loved one to come get them and take them to the hospital. And if patient is unwilling to go, then I will call the crisis line because at least they can assess the situation as well. So then there's two people assessing it and then they have the ability to take the patient to the unit. For a moderate risk, I always say to complete a safety plan, which is what Carissa had also said too. And you may wanna call a loved one of the patient to make sure that they are on the same page with the safety plan. For low risk, you wanna schedule a follow-up with the PCP, schedule an appointment with the therapist or the BHP. So if the patient is actually already seeing a therapist, make sure that they get scheduled. And then of course, provide the emergency and crisis numbers. 
So here's an example of the safety plan. On the bottom right hand corner, I did put my smart phrase. I do want to just take note that in the BHP world at PMG, we share our smart phrases. So this was created the overall template by someone else, and I just made it my own. Um, so I don't want to take full um, credit for creating this. So for the safety plan, so step one, we go over warning signs. So this can be any thoughts, images, moods, situations, behaviors that might take them down the dark path. So for instance, it could be, I saw my ex with their new partner, or it could be, I heard a song that reminded me of the traumatic event, those types of things. Then step two, you want to include internal coping strategies. So what can that person do on their own to take their mind off of the negative thoughts? So this could be things that they might have already learned in therapy if they've been in therapy. It could be relaxation. It could be doing some form of art. It could be listening to music, playing music, going for a walk. But you generally want to definitely get maybe three in this category. Step three, people that provide distractions. So for this one, it's not necessarily that you want them to identify people that they're going to inform that they're having suicidal thoughts, but who could they call or hang out with that might just provide a distraction so they don't stay in that negative state? Again, we want them to not isolate as much when they have when they're having suicidal thoughts. So in this one, I usually have one or two, but you can include more than that people that that can provide the distraction for them. For step four, places that provide distraction. So this could be going to a park, walking around the mall, maybe for a teenager. I just did this one the other day. Um, the teenager take like, her not staying in her room and being out in the living room or the kitchen with her family. The other for step five is people who I can ask for help. So these are the people that they would actually inform that they're having suicidal thoughts or plans or intent. And in this, you definitely want to come up with at least two people. For the next part of the safety plan, so I just want to state this for the record. I, this is what I include. Um, these are professionals or agencies that the person can contact during a crisis. So I always include the PCP, I include my name, I include the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, also the local crisis line, the text line, um, the local behavioral health unit. So for Southern Oregon, it's Asante. And then of course, 911. And Carissa was nice enough to remind me that it's always good to have the patient program the crisis number in their phone, one or two of them, whether it's the local or the national. For step seven, making the environment safe, this is what Carissa was talking about, that we want to assess what the person has access to. So for a patient that was recently suicidal in um, our clinic here, the patient, her plan was to either cut herself or to overdose on pills. So we made sure that the parents put all pills and all knives in the safe to keep them away from her. Um, firearms, of course, can go there, but you want to document what things and who they're going to give those things to to prevent them from being enticed by a suicide plan. 
And the last one is really important. Things that are most important to that person and worth living for. So this could be anything that the patient finds important and it's just kind of called forward thinking. So for a teenager that I recently worked with, her was, I wanna take a road trip once I graduate from high school. Or um, for another person, it could be, I can't wait till I'm actually um, a licensed medical provider. So those are kind of the things you want to put in. And again, you can get that smart phrase and make this your own. If you have a BHP in your clinic, please have the BHP complete this for you just so that you can have two people that have interacted with your patient. Otherwise, the PCP, you can do this yourself if you do not have a BHP on staff. For the follow-up component, we want to make sure before the appointment is complete that you schedule a follow-up with the PCP. If you have a BHP at your clinic, schedule a follow-up with the BHP. And then make sure to contact the patient's current therapist if they have one and get that ROI so you can make that contact. And what I always do is I call the patient the day after to check on them, especially if they're high risk or the following workday. So if it's on a Friday, then I would call Monday morning. And for this follow-up phone call, you can have a case manager, a triage nurse, a BHP, whatever person that you wanna identify. Now this part, I don't think we talk about enough when we do suicide risk assessment and management, and that's what you as the provider or clinician do after the crisis occurred. And in a recent event, I had a patient who was suicidal um, up in the Portland area. I was covering for somebody else. And the crisis person that helped me on the phone get the help that the person needed asked me what I was going to do for self-care after I got off the phone with her. So, you know, these are some things to consider. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. But for one, don't take it home. So use the right home to process it and let it go. If you wanna process it with your loved one at home, give yourself about 15 minutes and then choose to let that go. You can talk to another medical provider or other clinician to kind of discuss what happened. The big thing I noticed is that we have a tendency to critique ourselves afterwards. And afterwards, we always have better ideas than what we did in the moment. So disregard the negative chat. So what you could have done different, what wasn't good, just let it go. You did the best that you could in that moment. And limit your self-stewing time is what I call that. Avoid the self-criticizing. Uh, focus on your accomplishments that day and what you actually did do well. Maybe write them down so you can kind of remind yourself. Um, after I work with suicide uh, patients, uh, I usually come up with an intention for what I want for the evening so I can kind of go forth with that in a more positive state of mind. You can do breathing strategies, meditation, guided imagery, listen to music. I mean, you can do any of these things, but just find something to do that you're actively making a conscientious effort to engage in self-care. Here are the crisis lines. So I'm going to get, I'll make sure, oops, I didn't mean to do that. I'll make sure to post this in the chat line after I'm done. But this resource here, the Oregon.gov, it has all the crisis lines within each county. 
I put on here the crisis line for, of course, for uh, Rogue Valley, but these are also the national. So the National Suicide Prevention, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's also the Spanish hotline for that. There's the crisis text line where you text the home and then the number. There's a youth line. You can do text or phone call for that, and it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And fellow teens actually uh, respond on those calls from 4 to 10 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Trevor Project helps the LGBTQ community for young people, also 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have the Trans Lifeline. You have the Veterans Crisis Hotline, also with a text option. And you have Friends for Survival, and that's actually for people who are loved ones of those who have completed suicide. Here are the main ones for the resources for Southern Oregon, the crisis uh, for Jackson County. They do have a walk-in clinic 8 to 5 p.m., but that crisis number is 24-7 just for the phone call. You also have the Asante Behavioral Health Unit. So now I'd like for you guys to rank your, or rate yourself again. So on a scale of one to 10, are you completely comfortable and confident with your ability to assess and manage risk assessment, suicide risk assessment? Five, I can do it, but not really comfortable still. And one being, I need to take this again. And that concludes for us. Thank you, Dr. Dixon and Dr. Bravo. Uh, very informative. And anyone, if you have questions, please type them into the chat. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk about any resources in EPIC that help us with the risk stratification. Do you mean like the Columbia? Yes, so will that yes. help us determine the risk? Does it? spit out a number and say moderate risk or something like that? It, it, it spits out a category, so a category of risk. So yes, when you're answering those questions, as you answer each one, if they endorse ideation, it will drop down an extra question. Um, I believe there's only six questions total on the Columbia, and it will the output will be a category of risk. Great, thanks. And somebody uh, in the chat asked if it's um, under flow sheets or a dot phrase, and it's under flow sheets. All right. Um, and Dr. Dixon, your safety plan, do you put that in an after visit summary? Print it out I and do. give it to the patient? Yep. Absolutely. So, and that's even for the patient that if they are sent to the behavioral health unit after I meet with them, I make sure that they take that with them. Um, it's just good for them to know because when you're down the rabbit hole of suicidal ideation, you're not able to truly speak to yourself from a healthy place. So, this safety plan helps them talk at the healthy level and remind them okay, what do I need to do to help myself? Okay, so I see some 
questions here in the box. So most older adults who complete suicide, they do not talk about it. So how do you assess or assess? So the tricky thing is there are people who don't talk about it and there, unfortunately, there isn't much you can do. But if I think the important component is if you deal with your own stigma or attitudes on suicide, then you're able to actually use your gut and then your gut feeling, you can kind of get a sense like, hey, are you okay? And even if your gut says they're not okay, but the patient reports it, there's not that they're, or the patient reports that they are fine. There's really not much else that you can do because you have to take the person's word. Chrissy, do you want to add anything for that? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. So it's actually a myth that most people who complete suicide don't don't speak about it beforehand. We know through the research that most people who have completed suicide have shared that with somebody. And 40, the it ranges, but about 40 to 70% of older adults who completed suicide had seen their PCP in the months previous. Um, and so when you have a relationship with these individuals and have seen them long-term and some a major event has happened in their life, like the loss of a loved one, or you've noticed a shift in their demeanor, the most important thing is just screening, screen, 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 ask them those questions that I mentioned earlier. And then of course, if they deny over and over again, like Tracy said, you have to take them at their word. The, the reality is you can't prevent 100% of every possible suicide out there, but you do the best you can by asking those questions. At least you did your due diligence in asking and screening for it. Yeah, we have a question about uh changeable and fixed risk factors. So we care for an entire population with fixed, very high risk persons, yet there are almost no completed suicides. How does one discern between changeable and fixed risk? I'm not sure I understand the idea behind changeable and fixed risk, but yes, a lot of individuals that we're seeing have risk factors, but there's a difference between risk factors and warning signs like I spoke to earlier. So if you have patients who are chronically have high risk factors, you want to be looking for those warning signs that I talked about. All right. Um, another question are the dot phrases for suicide assessment um, documentation available to anyone? Or yeah. everyone? Yes. Yep. I will actually pull up the one that I use right now off of Epic and, and add it to the chat. Great. And if if they are actively suicidal and do say they plan to execute their plan, is the response to take them to the ED or, or what are other options are available if they uh, are resistant to going to the ED? So if they're resistant, that's when I call the crisis line because the crisis line has a mobile unit that will take the patient to the hospital. And at that point, they don't have a choice. Now, I've actually had the unfortunate incidents where a patient got very upset because we can't hold patients hostage. Um, so 
she actually left the clinic and I called the police to do a welfare check and go to the house. So you have options. Um, I don't usually call the police to the clinic. I find that sometimes they're not as um, helpful because they just don't know as much as the crisis line does. So that's when I call the crisis line instead, but the police are the ones that go to the home if the patient leaves. Thank you. Um, another question, isn't seeing a person in primary care just a marker for chronic disease and pain and not, I think that's suicide or suicidal risk or ideation? I think that gets to the, you know, the statistic about people have seen their primary care provider within the previous month. Well, I think it's important to note there, and I, I can see what the person is asking is, yes, they do come for chronic disease management, pain, whatever the condition is, but what you take away from that statistic is that it's an opportunity to do an assessment and just make sure that they're okay. Um, it's not to say that they're just coming in for suicidal, but they usually make contact and it's just an opportunity to see if there's a window or door open to help the patient because you never know at what point there is a window or door or opportunity to help. I just want to say that I added the dot phrase for the suicide assessment in the chat and that's courtesy of our behavioral health clinical manager actually Elisa Rudd. All right, thank you. Um, and I was um, probably the most shocking statistic was uh, your number for the trans population. And I was wondering if there's some extra screening we should be doing or other ways to support that population. No, that's a wonderful question. Yes, because when I look at the statistics, the group by far at the highest risk for suicide completion is the trans population. And I think working with their primary care uh, provider is a wonderful opportunity to feel that there is a safe person to come to. Um, my previous medical director, Dr. Uh, Chris Alstein, he was a champion for the trans population. And we had a few patients that he was seeing who were trans and he was actually the first person that they felt safe to come out to as trans before their family even. So I think especially working on any you know biases or attitudes that you have around the LGBTQ population is important and just making sure that they understand that you are a safe person for them to come to. All right, thank you. Um, we'll give it another minute or so for any other questions. I guess one other question I have, we're doing the PHQ-2 screening and we'll only get to the PHQ-9 if they are positive on the PHQ-2 and that was the way we would um, 
get to the question nine about self-harm. Do we miss a lot of people by uh, that might have a negative PHQ-2 but still be having suicidal ideations? That's a I, good question. I, I would say we probably don't miss a lot. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that it's uncommon for somebody to deny diminished mood or, or I mean, diminished interest or low mood, but endorse suicidal ideation. Can it happen? Yes. Is it common? No. So I don't think we miss a lot of people with that. Right. And I, I want to add to that just real quick. I think it's important because the natural tendency is for our anxiety and fear to come up when we're talking about this because we do want to protect people right and i think sometimes if we start thinking about all the things that you know like what if they don't really tell us the truth or what if we didn't ask that question and that was the one question we needed to ask um and that can just take us down a little bit darker of a path what i think again going back to focus on how you feel use your gut instinct if you feel something's off ask the question and if they tell you everything is fine, that's you have to take it at face value. And that's the best you can do. All right, thank you. Well, it looks like we have no more questions and thanks for a very informative presentation. And um, I'd like to learn more on this topic. <laughs> All right, uh, thank you everybody. Thank you. Thank Have you. a great day. All right.